0: If you were to graph on a chart, the trajectory of two people, right? Call one person a B player and the other person an A player. If the X axis is time and the Y axis is output, the B player will come in at an earlier time, but the growth will be linear, right? And then even if that A player comes in three, six months later they're starting at a way later point and way lower on the Y, but because their growth is exponential, they will surpass the person on the B, like not that far in the future, right?
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast, where we learn from today's global leaders in FinTech business and beyond. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armaza. My guest today is Kurt Lin, co-founder and CEO at Pinwheel, a cutting-edge payroll data connectivity platform helping fintechs and financial institutions access data from over 1,400 payroll providers in the U.S. Founded just a few years ago, Pinwheel today executes over 4.6 million processes per month and has raised about $80 million dollars from GGV, First Round, Two, Primary, Amex, Jackie Reeses, and many more top industry investors. In this episode, we discuss Kurt's serial entrepreneurship and why he considers himself constitutionally unemployable, the power of consumer payroll data, and while Kurt is convinced payroll systems are one of the major frontiers of innovation in the fintech industry today, scaling a remote team. Pinwheel went from 4 employees pre-pandemic to almost 90 today. What did he learn in the process? Lessons from years of fundraising and how a challenging equity-raising environment could look like for entrepreneurs, and just a lot more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kurt Lynn. Well, Kurt, welcome to the FinTech Leaders Podcast. Uh, great to have you here. Good to see you again this time uh, over Zoom remotely, that is, how's it going?
0: First of all, thanks for having me, Miguel. I know we've you know talked before and we've built a relationship, so very excited to finally get to uh, be on the pod. Um, Things are going great. Uh, we recently raised our, our Series B a few months ago, and I think it's a testament to all the great work the team has done. But we're just getting started, right? So uh, 2022 is going to be a big year for us.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm excited for, for all that you're doing and what the Pinwheel team is building. I actually know a few people in your company, and it's, it really sounds like an exciting environment where there's just optimism and growth. Uh, and that's that's what we want to talk about. But before we jump into Pinwheel, maybe just tell us a bit about your background, um, how you got to where you are today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I have been in startups my entire career. And what I like to say is I find myself to be constitutionally unemployable, right? And I feel like <laughs> what that really means is like growing up as a kid, I was what you would call like a troublemaker. Right. Like I would always get, you know, teachers over to write me up and give me detention. And I think my parents were like, man, this kid just like doesn't know how to behave. But in hindsight, I realized that, you know, I I always, I always saw things and in my mind, I was like, that doesn't seem like the right way to do it. And so I'd always speak up and be like, Hey, like, I don't think this is right. And as a kid, you know, no one's going to respect your opinion, and so you just, you know, you, you get punished for it. But as I got older and older, I realized that, you know, I had this view of the world where I would see a system or something that was broken and I'd want to fix it, and I finally had the means to do so. Right. So I actually started my first company when I was at uh, UCLA. My friends and I had seen that there was a problem with bike theft on campus, and so we built a piece of hardware that would attached to your bike to prevent bike theft, it's kind of like LoJack, but for for bikes and The long story short, there is that I knew nothing about how to operate a business as a twenty-year-old sophomore. Uh, I very luckily had two co-founders who were exceptional engineers, and so what that we were able to actually get the business off the ground and eventually passed it on to real operators to take it, and it's actually you know been quite successful since then. Um, But what it really taught me was that you know uh, being an entrepreneur is actually a, a career that really does work if you put in the time and you can like you can actually build a living off of it right because i think growing up especially entrepreneurship is really sexy now but growing up that was never really the case right like you were always told especially growing up in like a very traditional asian household it was like hey be a doctor be a lawyer be an engineer either get a very safe high-paying stable job so you can care for a family right and it's only been a very recent occurrence i think now everyone really like Glamorizes like being what a uh, being a founder, right? And so uh, that was the moment for me where I was like, oh, I can like do this, and like I can actually like earn a living, and this could actually be like what I do for, for my life. And so um, worked at other other couple startups here and there, and then before starting Pinwheel, I actually joined my current co-founder Curtis at a company called Lux, which uh, for those folks who were in the Bay Area back in 2014 was uh, the on-demand uh, valet parking app. So you're driving around the city, can't find parking. Um, we just drop a pin and someone would come pick up your car and park it for you. And so we bought that business, uh, sold it to Volvo. And so while Curtis and I were at Volvo waiting, frankly, for kind of that next transition, um, we were both given health savings accounts for the first time. And we realized there's a really big problem with these things, which is for the majority of Americans who live paycheck to paycheck, they don't have the cash flow to actually pre-fund and use these accounts. So... You can actually solve this problem by having people connect their spending accounts either with Platt or some sort of other aggregator. And then whenever they make a qualified medical expense, go with their payroll system and automatically add the tax savings directly to their paycheck. And so like an automated HSA, if you will, right. We got really excited about this. We raised some seed money, went out to market and then quickly realized that we had this really interesting problem, which is that we were spending all of our engineering hours, not, actually building product, which is obviously not good for our early stage company, but rather we were building integrations because we had customers who said, I love this thing. Can I use it? Um, I, I, I have ADP or I work there over another platform that can you support me? And we'd be like, oh, we don't have coverage for that. So we'll, we'll add it quickly. And we looked around and we said, hey, we need access to these payroll systems because they have really valuable information about who you are, how much you make where you work that we need in order to actually build our product there's got to be some sort of infrastructure or API or something out there that can allow us to connect and we just couldn't find anything so we basically built it internally for ourselves just to power our own app right and we had this aha moment after talking to a bunch of other fintechs uh, who all came to the same realization they were like wait a second you have this thing internally that allows you to access this kind of data like how much coverage do you have this is like Really work? Well, what else can you do with it? And when we kept on like, seeing the same type of like lean in, right? Like, you know how there's this concept in sales where um, if you're pitching something and the customer leans in as you're talking, you can tell that they're really engaged. We saw that when we were just like talking to people in our community. We're like, oh, there's something here. And so once we had that light bulb moment, we decided to pivot away from what we were doing originally and then focus strictly on the infrastructure, uh, allowing and enabling, I should say, um, fintech innovators, whether you're a, a fintech or whether you're like a traditional FI, uh, to access that really valuable income uh, information and access to those direct deposits to build the products of the future.
1: No, that's fascinating. And I'm I'm sure you're very much aware that 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 is actually the story of a number of fintech companies. They start with the strategy. They realize that either most of what they've built or part of what they've built is actually more valuable than the initial strategy. And then they pivot right and and so uh, it's it's interesting how how that works and and so maybe tell us about so you are that connecting tissue between a bunch of payroll providers and sounds like legacy technology and companies that are being built or you know existing uh, financial uh institutions right how is the side of the uh payroll providers you know how I guess fractured is the market, you know, is is there one sing one major provider or a couple ones, you know, and then how how challenging or easy has it been to integrate with them?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So uh just for it to be stated in case there's anyone listening who isn't aware of what we do, what Pinwheel does in short is we connect the massively fragmented ecosystem, like you mentioned, Miguel, around whether it's a payroll system like an ADP or a gig platform like Uber or a federal uh, you know, platform so we connect with everything from whether you're a postal worker or a military member um, and even future of work platforms like an Etsy or an eBay, we integrate with anywhere that has information about how you earn money. And we connect them to the banks, the lenders, the fintechs who need that information uh, to do simple things like just verifying how much you make and where you work to really advance use cases like powering um, earned wage access, right? And so um, with that kind of understanding in mind, your question around coverage is really interesting because honestly, when we first started this, we really were, I think, fairly myopic in how we saw the world, which was like, okay, well... ADP must have the lion's share of the market so you know you get those guys you get another 10 or 12 or 15 and we'll have critical mass right what we have realized is as we've gone on this journey the what we call the supply side but basically anywhere where there's information about how you earn money that market and ecosystem is so large and it's continually growing and it gets increasingly more fragmented because it's constantly changing right I think the comparable market that a lot of people try to use as like a mental model is like bank aggregation, right? Uh, like there's 11,000 banks, but it's you know really density uh, centered around the big ones, and then there's a massive long tail. There there is a parallel distribution as far as you know. Walmart's obviously the biggest employer in the country. Amazon's obviously very close, and then you kind of work your way down, but. There's actually, you know, the, the long tail exists, but the where the inflection point actually happens around, you know, kind of the downward slope is actually way farther down than people realize. And so we integrate with 1,500 plus unique platforms, and we've, we certainly have what we consider critical mass, but there's still so much more to, to get, right? And so it's that along with understanding that a lot of people are no longer W2 employees, right? Especially with COVID, which I think really accelerated this shift. Let me rephrase that. More and more people are starting to realize that uh, they don't have to work a standard 9 to 5 W2 job, right? They can make a lot of, in fact, probably more money um, as a gig worker, as a contractor, or in some way running their own business. And it's really important that for us, we can get that information and then organize it in a way that is actually Truly digestible and usable uh, for a banker lender, right? Because these folks are used to underwriting or understanding someone's risk or income profile purely based off of a W 2, right? Like a W 2 or a pay stub that is structured as a W 2. But all of a sudden you have like this Uber driver who comes along and you're like, wait a second, uh, what is your income, right? What's your monthly income? What's your weekly income? What's your annual income? How do I figure out how to actually effectively underwrite you? And that's, I think, where a lot of the value that we can actually bring to the table is.
1: And, and this this integration, I'm sure they're not always easy. How often do you have to build the APIs for the other side versus, you know, polishing your own? Yeah, <laughs> it's
0: a really insightful and astute observation. As anyone in the aggregation world will tell you, uh, it is not easy and that's part of the boat, right? Like, only masochists will, will spend, you know, hours and hours and frankly years and years of their life on this problem. I think the Ecosystem is certainly changing quite a bit, but there are a lot of legacy folks, right? Who just simply don't have the infrastructure to support what we want to do. And uh, it really starts with a a point that I think is oftentimes misunderstood. All of these folks want to do right by the customers of their customers, which is basically the employee, right? They, they, They do understand that if you can make the experience better for that employee, better yet, actually help them unlock cheaper, better financial products. Right? That's ultimately going to be a net benefit for their customer, who's the employer. And so, there's a willingness to work together to actually figure out how to do this in a way that is scalable and makes sense, and is you know compliant and all that good stuff. Uh, but a lot of them simply just don't have the technological resources to do this effectively, right? So that's where we can kind of come in and help bridge the gap uh, by offering them a solution that, you know, instead of us having to integrate with them, here's like a really easy platform where you can actually come come integrate with us, right? And so that's something that we're excited about rolling out, which is just kind of like universally accessible platform that folks can connect to. But it is certainly, as with any sea change uh, it takes a while for things to really
1: kind of permeate through the ecosystem. Kurt, one of the things I've heard you say before, both in our conversations and other interviews you've you've been on, is about your kind of conviction that payroll systems are one of the major frontiers of innovation in the fintech industry today. Right? Maybe talk about that concept a little bit.
0: Yeah. Uh, I appreciate you doing your homework. <laughs> there it is, um, But it really is true, right? Like I, I think back to the moment that we decided that we wanted to make this pivot and a part of it was that we uncovered this really burning need in the market for our customers. But the other part of it was, uh, and frankly, the founding ethos and mission of the company is that we truly believe at the core of this, that unlocking all of this really valuable information about, how you make money and putting it into the hands of consumers meaningfully improves financial outcomes, uh, especially for those who are underserved, right? And I'll give you a couple examples. Um, One is a personal one for me, which is growing up, as I mentioned earlier, uh, grew up in a very traditional Asian household, right? And one of the things uh, that we held true from a cultural value perspective was that carrying debt is anathema to being a good, a good citizen, a good person, right? It means that you were undisciplined, that you know you, you, you over-leverage yourself, etc. And so uh, my parents never carried debt, right? Like you would, you would only ever spend money um, when you actually had it. And so uh, I remember when my, uh, I was like, I think three or four years old, certainly not old enough to really understand what's going on, but old enough to, to remember, I went with my dad to go to the bank to see if he can get a mortgage because he wanted to go buy a house. And I remember him getting rejected bank after bank after bank after bank. And he's an incredibly stoic, composed person. And it was the first time in my life, like you always growing up, think your parents are invincible, right? Like you're like, there's no way they can break. It was the first time that I saw him really crack. I could see him being really mad and just basically frustrated. And I didn't know what was going on. It was like that memory stuck with me. And then as I got older, I I realized it was because the system just didn't fundamentally work for him and for a lot of other people, right? Because he just didn't have a credit history. And one of the things that we realize that you can do with this data is be able to say, "Hey, even if you don't have a credit history, if I can show enough information around their income, show that there's low volatility, that they're making good money, that there's steady employment, um, you can give lenders a lot of reassurances that this person is actually worth lending to, and frankly will perform." like a seven hundred or seven fifty you just you need to trust the data right um, or you can also layer on the piece with the direct deposits um, as a mechanism for actually repaying loans to even further de-risk that product as well right and so once we realized the power of this it, it was a no-brainer where we felt compelled to build this because we just knew that the that the the country and frankly the world needed to have this
1: now that that's a very powerful example. And I think a lot of people in the audience will have their own version, right? That they can relate. I, I certainly do. I guess on the same topic, what's next for credit scoring? I know that you're part of this transformation that the credit scoring industry is going through. FICO, at least in the US, has been the score, right? The central score. And there's a few ex- a few examples where the FICO score is being challenged, right, Um, or improved. But from your point of view, what's next?
0: Yeah, there's a couple of things I'll say here. Number one is that I believe the entire idea of credit and how we think about credit is really changing quickly, right? And a lot of it is taking ideas that are not new, but repackaging them in a way that is actually much more understandable to the consumer, especially from a value prop perspective, right? So I'll give you a couple examples. One is just, you know, there has been a massive proliferation of buy now, pay later providers. Buy now, pay later is just an installment loan, right? Like we've had short-term installment loans for, for decades, frankly, probably centuries or millennia, right? I give you money and then you pay it back to me in equal chunks for the next, you know, six months or what have you. But doing it in a way that is, you know, at the point of sale in terms that is really easy to like, hey, four easy payments of X, it really changes the equation, right? Because that's what people understand, oh, okay, like I, I can access liquidity in a way that I don't have to go to a bank and then go to, to buy my thing, right? Like you really took the friction out. Um, but it is just another form of repackaging the same credit product. In the same way, one of the things that we're most excited about at Pinwheel is this idea of earned wage access, Right. Like everyone in FinTech knows this has been something that everyone has tried to crack for a long time, but hasn't been able to. And it really is in short, frankly, we feel like a a real injustice that this hasn't already been fixed. Right. The fact that you only get paid twice a month or once a month. And in between paychecks, you run out of money and then you can't make rent or you have an emergency uh, medical expense or you have a flat tire and you actually don't have access to the money that you've already earned. You just haven't been gotten paid because of the way that your employer set up their payroll system is just crazy, right? That's your money. You're effectively lending your money to your employer at no interest, right? And what we've been able to uh, really see is that the folks who've tried to make uh, strides towards solving this problem, there hasn't been a perfect solution, right? You've either had folks who've done this through the employer, and that's great. It actually works well, but then you never get the scale, right? Because you have to go HR team by HR team, and that's... For those who've ever sold to HR teams, which I have before, it's rough, <laughs> It's not because they're not great people and they really want to do uh, well for their teams, but it's just hard to validate that kind of cost in a company that is focused on the P and L, right? Because the attribution is really tough. And the other version are folks who are trying to do it D to C, but they don't have the complete set of data, right? So you're doing something involving geolocation or the extrapolation of a lot of signals that is always going to be a little noisy, right? What we have finally been able to do after a lot of really hard work and you know the work is still ongoing is to say, well, we have three really critical pieces. One is we know at the time that you're actually asking for money that you have clocked in and clocked out of your shit today at Chipotle, for example, right? Number two, we also know that you are still, as of this very moment, uh, actively employed. So we know you're going to get paid. And then three, we also know that or rather, we have access to your direct deposit so that when you do get paid two weeks from now or a month from now, we can guarantee effectively repayment because we're first money out in my direct deposit, right? We'll pull it out before it even hits the bank account. So if you put those three things together, now you have earned wage access as a feature, right? And so we've been able to deploy that with some of the you know biggest players in the space, and we're really excited about that. And... You know, once you can do that as a feature, then there's all these other things that you can do, right? If you can do earned wage access as a feature, you can also do revolving credit as a feature. You can do paycheck-linked lending as a feature, right? Um, And the list goes on and on.
1: Yeah, and to me, the incredible part here is that this is very relevant in the U.S. It's arguably even more relevant around the world, particularly in emerging markets. Uh, So uh, I know that we've collectively... Talk to you know one of our portfolio companies, and that's Palenka. And they're they're doing that for for Latin America. Um, so uh, you know, hey, you're, you're you're inspiring other companies around the world, and you know, it's these are real problems that are being solved.
0: Yeah, they're they're a great team. Uh, so shout out to the Palenka team. They're they're doing great work.
1: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Shout out <laughs> to Palenka. Uh, could let, let, let's talk a bit about your your team. Uh, roughly speaking. How many were you pre-pandemic and how many are you today?
0: Yeah, uh, I was actually just thinking about this the other day. It's crazy to realize, but I think pre-pandemic it was literally I think four, four or five people. That's incredible. And yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and
0: so we we were now closer to 85, soon to be 100 next month or so. Um, And so all that growth has been in just a very short amount of time. And I think we learned a lot of lessons the hard way, frankly, because growing a team in a remote-first context, especially if you're not intentional and prepared, uh, can be really tough. And so I think for us, it quickly, uh, like I think the benefit of having gone through hyper-growth before with uh, Curtis during the Lux days, there were a couple key lessons that uh, I had learned. And one of the really big ones was just being super, super intentional about the early hires because they are the blueprint, whether you like it or not for everyone else, right? Because they're going to be hiring folks on their teams. And so they're going to be pattern matching or being like looking at the culture that we built and making sure that there are people who, who fit the the prototype of what we want to continue to grow the team with. And so we actually interviewed uh, and this is, this is a real number, even though it's hard to believe. We interviewed 80 plus engineers, uh, a lot of whom were you know, exceptional, like fang-level uh, um, uh, technical folks before we hired our first two engineers. And the reason why it took us so long be- was because the technical aptitude for us was table stakes, right? Like We obviously had to be a good engineer what we really cared about was folks who would actually be the cultural founders. And so, you know, are you highly collaborative? Are you low ego and self-aware? Um, are you just, you know, insanely driven, um, to really achieve, uh, your goals? And it really helped us, uh, build the foundation of the culture now, which people ask me in interviews all the time, like, what, like, what's your culture? Like, tell me about that. Which first of all, by the way, is an incredibly hard question to answer, right? Like, how much time do you have? Like, <laughs> I, I can talk for hours about our culture, but the thing that I just answered with it, which I think uh, summarizes this very succinctly is, you know, over the past three years plus, we've had effectively no attrition. Like there's been some along the way, but generally for someone in our stage and in our market, in this competitive of a market, I, I, I should add, uh, far below market attrition rates. And, while I would like to selfishly think that this is something that I you know, did and it's because of me, it's not, it really isn't right. It's the fact that I think we were very lucky to have the early folks on the team that we did and they believed so strongly in the mission and in building a team of people that were like them, who had the same ambitions, but deep caring um, for each other, as well as alignment on where we wanted to go, that uh, they themselves built these really tight bonds. And so, you know that just over time will really compound because that flywheel keeps on spinning, right? And so that thing that I'm most proud of, honestly, of like above any of the you know revenue metrics, growth metrics, whatever, it's the fact that I can tell how close the team is and how much they care about each other. That's what I'm most proud of.
1: No, and, and that you you hear that from the strongest entrepreneurs. Uh, two things that you've just said is I just interviewed Renaud Laplanche, of course, one of the grandparents of fintech you know like og and he you know he was talking about you know you 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 get an a plus initial team and they're they're going to get you know a players as well right but he was also talking about being patient uh cuz you you have that urgency to fill that role but you know you just can't just find the first okay candidate and and it sounds like you did that you you were patient uh to find your first hires what other challenges you ex- you experienced uh, in building, you know, uh, an A-class team uh, in a com- very competitive adv- environment because there are a ton of other well-funded startups around New York or the entire country also hiring?
0: Yeah, that's a really great question. So I actually want to make a comment about the point you made, which is uh, totally true, but it's a really, really hard thing to do in the moment, right? you're under so much pressure and duress to deliver results. And I think I totally understand the temptation to say, we just need someone to do the job, right? Like if we have to wait another three months, get this person in the seat, like we'll have missed the window. It'll be too late. And the whole concept of startups is that the only advantage you have is speed, right? You don't have more money. You don't have better distribution. You have no like name recognition. The only advantage you have is just speed of execution. Right? And so, there's almost this level of cognitive dissonance you have where you're being told by everyone around you, you've got to move super fast if you want to win. And then you're saying to them, like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Like this person's like good enough. You got to keep waiting. You got to keep waiting. And it's really hard to do, right? It's really hard to stay true to that conviction. And the thing that I always, uh, you know, think back to is when you look at, like if you were to graph on a chart, the trajectory of two people, right? Call one person, a B player, and the other person an A player, if the X axis is time and the Y axis is output, the B player will come in at an earlier time, but the growth will be linear, right? And then even if that A player comes in three, six months later, they're starting at a way later point and way lower on the Y, but because their growth is exponential, they will surpass the person on the B, like not that far in the future, right? Um, and so... You have to have that framing in mind whenever you're thinking about hiring. Uh, but it's tough. It's, I, I mean, we've been in so many situations where I've been in a deep with my team and they're like, hey, like, we just really got to get someone in the seat. Otherwise, like, we're just, we're just not going to hit our goals. Right. And it's so, so hard to sit there and just be like, I hear you. I really do. You just got to trust the process here that if we like don't get the right person in the seat, it's going to cost us more. Um, and it's hard to see now, but you just we, we have to know that tradeoff is there. So um, that's, that's one. And then um, I think when it comes to this really competitive hiring market, the, the honest answer is um, if you have a philosophy around hiring, it helps a lot, right? And we should have had this earlier on, but we, we added it in eventually, which was if we believe we're hiring top 5% talent, then you have to be paying top 5% prices, right? It's just, just simple market dynamics. And so if you don't, if you, if you try to hire top 5% talent, but you aren't willing to pay the price, you're just not going to able to compete. Right. And we actually learned this, you know, my, my head of, or sorry, not my, our head of recruitment, uh, Peter, I'm sure if he's listening. This will be a painfully familiar conversation. <laughs> <to him. laughs> but We would be going after these amazing people and he'd be like, we've got to up our offer. Like we're just, they're like, I'm seeing this in the market. And if we actually want to win, like we just got to pay them what their, what the market values them at. Otherwise, we're just not going to get them. Um, and I think that part really goes um, oftentimes kind of glossed over because all you hear from, especially in my founder circles is like, oh, we got to sell them on the upside. You got to have on the vision. And I'm like, look, these people are fully bought into the mission, fully bought into the vision. They totally see the upside. But when there's a delta, when there's like a 30 to 50% delta on the base salary, <laughs> it's, just, it's just really hard to overlook that, right? And so you've got to close the gap enough to, to say that, like, look, your quality of life is not going to meaningfully change uh, because of this small difference in your salary. And the upside here is like, if you really believe in us, like that's that's what you should come in for, right? Like, I don't want people coming in. If you want just cash, go to Google, go to Facebook. There's plenty of places like that which will pay you a lot of money. Um, and so we want missionaries, not mercenaries. But there's just a, a real, you know, you have to face the facts, right? And the market it is where it is right now.
1: And well, to pay those salaries, you gotta you gotta raise the money, right? <laughs> True. <laughs> uh, maybe maybe tell us about that that part of the business. You know, you guys have done well a uh, very successful series B. Uh, but, you know, it, it's more of an art rather than a science to be able to get VCs on board, right? You know, wh- what, has, what has worked for you? You know, maybe share some mistakes that you did, some lessons I learned along the way. Because, by the way, we have founders who are earlier than, than you and who, are, who might be getting started Uh, that I'm sure are going to be curious to learn about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I I will just say first and foremost, because it has to be said as a disclaimer, shaving off the past few months as the public markets have corrected, the past couple of years and this like latter half of a bull run have just been wild, right? And it's, I I remember this distinctly because back in uh, the mid 2010s, we're at Lux and we were fundraising for our B, Um, like we had a big business with a big top line, with a lot of growth. The margins weren't totally there, which is a whole different story about on-demand logistics, which we can go into if we want, but it's a tough, tough business. It was really hard to raise. And I I remember talking uh, with Curtis uh, about that process and just how exhausting it was uh, because, you know, the market was at a very different place. And so I think in today's day and age, again, minusing the, the past few months that, where the market has really changed, um, the, I honestly, the, uh, it has to be recognized that, that it, the bar was lower, right. Or is, and was lower. So that's just number one. But along with that, I think, you know, a lot of the advice you get broadly speaking is fairly accurate, which is that this is a long term thing, right? Like, uh, Someone that I'm close to once told me, "You know, jobs are short, careers are long, and so you need to build relationships, right?" And it's really interesting because I think a lot of folks have, whether behind closed doors or I think this happens less publicly, will equate uh, fundraising to dating, right? Where it's it's a lot of the times you will feel a connection with a partner who you can tell just gets it, right? And if they don't, that's okay, but don't waste your time with someone who who doesn't get you, doesn't get the vision, doesn't really see where this is going because you, especially early on, you believers, right? All those early stage vets are just, it's like 99% team and founder, right? And, well, founder, I should say. And generally a lot less so, you know, what is the like, really special thesis that they have because the reality is inevitably the strategy is gonna change, the market's gonna change, and it's about whether the team can operate themselves to a place of success, not can they do they have the best idea in the world, right? I think I think it, it's a John Dor quote that is um, uh, ideas are meaningless, execution is everything, right? And it really is true. And so um, the advice that I always try to give folks is early on in the process, right, just like with dating when you find someone who gets it, you'll know. There will be a connection there. You can tell they're leaning in, and they, they want to learn more. And they want to support you. And there are folks who will, will won't. And you focus on the ones that do, and you really only need one, right? Because if you find one person who can be that true evangelist supporter, they will go out of their way to bring in the other folks behind them, right? So in... Most context, that's like a lead investor. But even if you're not actually doing a real round, having one really true believer as an angel who knows other angels, they will vouch for you and then you have this network effect of social proofing, right? You need that one domino to fall and the rest of it starts to come through. And so for the folks who are, especially those who have had more trouble on the fundraising side of things, that's where I always say is like, just you got to find those real believers and just find that first one and the rest will slowly start to fall.
1: Yeah, that's good advice. That's uh, definitely very, very true. Uh, Kurt, before I let you go, you know, uh, it's always good to hear about people that have lent a helping hand, you know, uh, along the way. And I'm sure uh, you have folks who have been consequential in in your journey, particularly as a founder. Um, You know, when when you think of that group of people, are there any names that come to mind? There are frankly too many.
0: <laughs> I almost hesitate to answer this question because I know I'm gonna miss some people and then I'm gonna be like, oh man, I should have I should have you know shouted them out or or whatnot. But um, I would say a few really come to mind. The first and most obvious is my co-founder Curtis, right? I, I I've learned so much from him as a Fellow operator, and as a co-founder, and just like as a as a friend, and I think one thing that just doesn't get discussed enough because it's often taboo is how hard the journey of being a founder really is. Right? It's like incredibly emotionally taxing. It's uh, oftentimes leads to a lot of downstream effects in your personal life, and if you can't manage it well, it can really you know leave permanent damage. And, uh, he's been so helpful, both in terms of learning how to be the best operator and leader I can be, but also what the like personal and emotional side of things, right? Like he's, you know, helped give me a lot of, you know, wisdom and guidance there. And so I'm forever grateful um, to him for that, uh, counsel that he's had all like since the very beginning. Another person that I, I feel really compelled to, uh, recognize is one of our, uh, early investors on the A round um, is uh, our partner at Cotu, uh Michael Gilroy, who, uh, you know, when you look at the set of players in the space, right? Like when you're this early on, you're making a conviction bet, right? And I think one of the things that has uh, really always made me grateful for his Partnership is he recognized that there's is a competitive landscape, but you know this is the, the the team that I want to bet on, and having that unwavering con- conviction from your board member and your investor and supporter really helps build a foundation to know that you know you can go far because you know you have that the, those folks behind you really you know pushing you uh, and and will catch you if you fall right um, and and they'll pick you back up and help you keep moving forward and you know that's that's really important. Uh, and I feel like also doesn't get discussed enough where when people talk about fundraising, they often are just, like, oh, I want to go for like a tier one firm, right? I want this like really shiny brand name. And that's like, that's what I'm going for, which is fine. Like there, there's, there's real value in going into a, to a tier one VC, but it's all about the partners. Right? like the, the partner is the person who's gonna be sitting there with you in the trenches, and when you have a really hairy problem that you just can't figure out, or you're just not in a good place, and you just need someone to talk through things, like if you don't have that, that partner on the board, or the partner in, from an advisor perspective that you can be honest with and ask for help, uh, it just makes the journey really lonely, right? and it makes it way harder than it has to actually be. Um, and so I'm really grateful for, for Michael for being that partner uh, to me from the moment that we started working together.
1: Fascinating stuff. Well, Kurt, I could not thank you enough for, for joining and spending uh, quality time with us. And uh, no doubt the audience is going to enjoy this. Uh, just a lot of golden nuggets and great lessons for, for folks out there. So th- thanks so much for joining. Thank you, Miguel. This has been a
0: blast and I really hope you get a chance to do this again soon.
1: Thanks for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed this episode with Kurt Lind, CEO of Pinwheel. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. As always, I want to extend a very special thank you to the great editor Rafael Ostria for his amazing work behind the scenes. Signing off till next week, I'm your host Miguel Armaza.